Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibuglani. As regular listeners know, Osmosis has a special commitment to educating clinicians, patients, and families about rare diseases. In partnership with the National Organization for Rare Disorders, we've worked with dozens of patient advocacy groups and subject matter experts to develop nearly 50 engaging videos on rare disorders that have been viewed millions of times. Today on Raise Line, we're going to broaden our scope and learn about how patients and family members in Europe work with clinicians and others to advocate for themselves and their loved ones. I'm delighted to welcome Philippe Pachter, an international lawyer and legal consultant based in Geneva, Switzerland, whose daughter Lisiane was born with a serious form of Pierre Robin sequence. Philippe is a great example of how well-informed rare disease family members are and why clinicians should listen closely to what they have to say. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our CEO at Elsevier, Kumsal Bayezet, who first connected me to Philippe uh, because actually he published uh, his patient experience about Lisiane uh, with some very interesting conclusions that I think are broadly applicable beyond Robin sequence to the rare disease community in one of the Elsevier journals, Seminars in Fetal and Neonatal Medicine. So Philippe, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. And, you know, because you brought up Kumsal Bayezit, the uh, CEO of Elsevier, the parent company, I wanted to really take just a quick moment to express again my sincere thanks because of the fact that she reached out to me personally, um, having read the article that I submitted to the journal as a parent, as a rare disease parent, and she granted us gold open access. And that that that's just such a beautiful, um, meaningful gesture. We wanted as many people to read the article as possible. And for us, it was monumental. And and I, I, I thank her again, from the bottom of my heart and the people in my family and in the rare disease patient group that I'm with, giving us open access on that journal article meant a whole a whole lot. It really did. Definitely. And, and I will say, you know, now we're nine months into joining Elsevier that uh, we knew about the values, we knew about the leadership team, but certainly they live it. They walk the walk, they don't just talk the talk. And that was just one example where she, I told her about our rare disease focus and she immediately said your name, sent me your article and connected us. So uh, truly a wonderful leader. I'm privileged to work for her. Um, so let's go into your story. I obviously know quite a bit about you and your background. We've spoken a couple of times before, but for our audience, many of whom are current and future clinicians, can you just give us a breakdown of your family story about Lisiane and your journey dealing with the Pierre Robin sequence? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, Pierre Robin sequence um, was first studied by a French stomatologist, which is like a orthodontist, um, over a hundred years ago, and it really has three diagnostic criteria. A baby is diagnosed with pyruvan sequence if the baby is showing an anatomical defect, micronathia, which is a very small, undersized um, lower chin. The mandible is very small, undersized. Um, the second criteria is glossoptosis, which is another anatomical defect. The tongue, instead of being in a flat horizontal position in the mouth, is in a raised vertical position in the back of the throat. And as you can imagine, if you visualize that, that raised vertical tongue is blocking the airway, which is creating breathing difficulties and feeding difficulties. So that's the second thing is glossoptosis. And the third diagnostic criteria is actually upper airway obstruction as determined by polysomnography, by a sleep study, that the baby is suffering from uh, an apnea hypopnea index, which is above normal for a, a child of, of that age. Now, 
what this comes down to in, in reality is the baby's born and the baby is struggling to breathe. It's like you're watching your baby suffocating, but there's no water anywhere around. But the baby can't breathe because that tongue is just blocking the throat. Um, it, it's not strictly a mechanical issue. For instance, there are babies that have not so severe micronathia. The lower chin is not so small and the tongue is not so vertical, but still there are breathing difficulties. So it's a complex condition that has neurological components. But what it comes down to is that in the vast majority of cases, this seems to be an anatomical problem of the tongue in that raised position blocking the airway and causing the upper airway obstruction. Now, another thing is that most of the babies that are born with pyruvate sequence, they suffer from a cleft palate, not a cleft lip, but a cleft palate. And actually, it's an interesting development. It's actually a consequence of the fact that during the prenatal period, the tongue being in that vertical raised position effectively prevents the roof of the mouth from fusing which it would normally do in the prenatal period. So the tongue being in that position is what causes that cleft in the palate. And so the important thing to understand for um, medical students and for clinicians without experience um, in this rare disease is that we're not looking at a baby with a cleft that happens to have a small chin. We're looking at a baby with a complex rare disease who happens to have a cleft and may not even have a cleft, which is to say that expertise in cleft care does not confer expertise in pierroban sequence, because pierroban sequence is a highly complex rare disease, which is still being studied and, and which experts are trying to better understand. But for instance, one of the many things that separates it from a standard case of cleft is that the mortality rate is substantially higher. In one Dutch study, the mortality rate of Robin sequence babies was eight times higher than babies without Robin sequence. Another striking fact is that when a baby is born and diagnosed with pyruvate sequence, over half of those babies will also suffer from another complex associated condition. And then you start talking about syndromic Robin sequence. So you don't just have the glossoptosis, micronathia, and upper airway obstruction, but you have all three of those plus Stickler syndrome or Treacher Collins or some other complex treacherous rare disease, which is associated with the Robin sequence and making treatment that much more difficult and uh, and complex. So it's a really heterogeneous rare disease. It's extremely difficult to generalize from case to case. And unfortunately, in, in many situations, what happens to the detriment of the child is that the pyruvate sequence baby will fall under the care of a cleft team, which may be absolutely expert with cleft, but which may not have a whole lot of experience with Robin sequence, which remember is not like cleft. Cleft is common. Pyruvate sequence is a rare disease. We're talking about a, approximately one out of 10,000 babies. So it's not a common condition. Anyway, our, our daughter was born with pyruvate sequence. And unfortunately, um, it can be prenatally diagnosed. And how it would be prenatally diagnosed is simply in the ultrasound images, 
it should be possible to identify a radically undersized lower jaw. And I remember that my wife, when we looked at the ultrasound images, she said to me, Philippe, you know, it's strange because the baby looks like Bart Simpson. And, you know, Bart Simpson from The Simpsons, he's got this very small, recessed uh, chin. And, and I said to her, I said, look, you know, we don't know anything. You know, the experts know what they're doing and they would tell us if something was wrong. But in fact, the experts didn't know and overlooked the micronathia and also looked another warning sign, which was polyhydramnios, which was a severe excess of amniotic fluid. So in other words, we've got two big red flags for Robin sequence. We've got severe micronathia and we've got a, a severe excess of amniotic fluid and no flags were raised. Nobody said, hey, it looks like we may be dealing with something. Maybe we should consider that you give birth in a center of expertise for this rare disease because we don't have a lot of experience with this. No, it was all overlooked. And this kind of underscores the importance of prenatal diagnosis of this rare disease. And I think diagnosis in general of rare diseases. Diagnosing rare diseases is not an easy thing. And many rare disease patients suffer for many years in what's called the diagnostic odyssey, where you're just waiting to find out what it is you're suffering from. So I'll give you an example. It's our own daughter, Lisiane. Lisiane was diagnosed with Pierre-Ban sequence when she was born. Um, but she also has an associated condition. There's a genome board that was put together to study her genes, and they did identify a, a certain microdeletion in one of her genes, but they're not sure if that would explain her many other symptoms, because our daughter has, has a number of very serious developmental problems, which cannot be attributed to Pierre-Robin sequence. As I said earlier, Robin sequence arises in over half of the cases in association with another condition. She's got another condition, but they just don't know what it is yet. So we're in this sort of diagnostic odyssey of waiting and hoping to find out what else she has that can explain her other problems. Um, I'm sorry to speak so quickly about so many different things, but anyway. It's yeah, no, you've covered a lot. I mean, because I was going to reference a couple of things you mentioned, like the importance of prenatal screening, because, you know, I heard your talk. Uh, you gave a, a great talk at the uh, third annual raw bond sequence consensus meeting back in April. And, you know, I've seen the ultrasounds of Lizanne and you're right. Um, you know, these things were missed. And one of the main points you made was that, you know, as, a, as new parents, without any idea of this, uh, kind of just trusting in the clinicians who are doing their best, but they just may miss something or they're not familiar with these rare conditions. Because as we've shared, you know, when you were in med school, when I was in med school at Hopkins, the saying is when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Uh, the thing is, there are 7,000 zebras out there, 7,000 rare disorders that affect collectively over 300 million people. And so for, for those people, they want the diagnostic odyssey to not be four to nine years on average, um, but as short as possible. And as you said, it has real implications where if that was caught, you could go to the center of excellence and get the best care. Um, you guys, I mean, you in particular have, have a great story of how informed you got, how quickly you got informed about it uh, and where you've taken that. Yeah, there are um, very different ways that people respond to the same types of situations. I mean, and, and that's classic in all sort of different aspects of life. When we learned of her rare disease, our way of reacting was we, we need to learn everything we can possibly learn. 
we, we need to just dive in. We're not trained. We don't have a medical background, but we need to do our absolute utmost for our child to understand what is going on, what possibilities exist, and, and what should the next step be. And then there are other parents that are so overwhelmed, so devastated, absolutely devastated, that they can experience a type of temporary or even long-term paralysis where they just don't know how to handle it emotionally. And the way that they react is they adapt a passive role of just trusting the physicians to do what they need to do and not to question anything and not even to attempt to get a, a deeper understanding. It's just too hard. It's too difficult. There's no right or wrong in this. It's just a question of your makeup, how you react to things, you know, and we really dove in. We read everything we could. And I have to say that I'm actually American. I was born and raised in, in New York. And so English is my first language. And that was a huge, huge advantage because our baby was born in France. But I wasn't doing research in French. I didn't go to Google French. I, I was doing research in English. And because I was doing research in English on peer event sequence, I successfully um, located a whole bunch of medical studies, which are written always in English, because English is the language of international scientific research. And that's just the way it is. It's just a fact. And when you're doing research, if you're trying to do research in French or in Spanish, uh, other languages, you're not as likely to hit the bullseye. But we found a number of fantastic studies coming from a certain center of excellence in a place we had never heard of before, Tübingen, Germany. Now, in Germany, Tübingen is very well known. It's considered one of the very top universities in, in Germany. We didn't know about it, um, but the more we read of the studies put out by their center of excellence in Robin Sequence, the more we were convinced that this really stood apart because it promised to resolve the upper airway obstruction and to facilitate the feeding. And Lisianne suffered from both of those symptoms, upper airway obstruction and feeding difficulties. Uh, she was attached to a mechanical breathing machine and a, a, a feeding pump which fed her milk through a nasogastric tube. So, you know, she needed mechanical support for two of her primary life requirements, breathing and, and feeding. So um, this treatment offered the prospect of addressing those serious symptoms without surgery. It, it was an orthodontic treatment. And a lot of us Americans um, as kids or our children have had braces, orthodontic treatment. And after the braces are taken out, typically the child will receive a retainer, this little thing that they place in their mouth. And it just sort of keeps the, the teeth in the position that they're in, in the correct position. The Tübingen palatal plate, which is the orthodontic treatment developed at the Tübingen University Hospital, is basically, if you can think of it, it's like a retainer, which is on the roof of the mouth, but it has this extension in the back. It's a an extension which descends almost vertically and in the back of the throat. And what that extension does is it pushes the tongue forward and down. So it's like this elegant mechanical engineering solution for an anatomical defect, instantly liberating the airway. So it seems like, wow, that's pretty straightforward. In fact, it requires enormous precision to 
to determine the correct length and angle of that vertical extension. And that's typically done with fiber optic endoscopy. So a camera is sent into the airway to determine whether or not this um, prototype of the TPP, the tubingen palatal plate, successfully displaces the tongue forward and opens up the airway. It's a question of millimeters. You know, if the angle is off by two degrees, it's got to be perfect. And so it requires a great deal of expertise and a multidisciplinary team. There's no question about it. But again, it's essentially an orthodontic treatment, which is quite radical because it promises and, and successfully does, um, as demonstrated in 15 years worth of peer-reviewed medical studies, it promises to resolve the upper airway obstruction and facilitate feeding without surgery. Now, when you consider the other alternatives, there are various treatments for PRBAN sequence. The one that has become quite standard today, particularly in the United States of America, is MDO, mandibular distraction osteogenesis. And this is quite an aggressive procedure, which involves basically um, fracturing the mandible, the, the lower jaw, and inserting um, titanium rods, which have screws that the parents, over a course of several weeks, will turn each day or a couple of days to enlarge the gap between the pieces of the mandible, and bone will develop to fill the gap. So you're actually enlarging the mandible by, by creating space between those two points where you've created the surgical uh, breaks. Now, that involves hardware, and that involves at least two rounds of serious surgery. It does seem to be um, supported by evidence. It does resolve upper airway obstruction, in the best centers, they say that it's over 90% effective. But the thing is, is that the tubingen palatal plate achieves the same goals and it doesn't involve surgery, anesthesia. I mean, it's quite a remarkable, um, minimally invasive alternative. And this is a fascinating thing because I think that where physicians may disagree on the best uh, treatment for any complex condition, there's always room for disagreement. I think that there are certain principles that we can agree to. And one of those is that surgery on a newborn baby should only be performed when it's reasonably necessary. Uh, surgery is a big deal on a newborn baby and not just for the baby, but for the parents as well. It's a type of trauma to send your newborn into uh, aggressive surgery. So the third kind of step in this logical progression is that those surgeons that are carrying out MDO on pierroban sequence patients are, in the vast majority of cases, carrying out unnecessary surgery on a newborn baby. And that's, that's a heavy thing. And that, that's really, I think, a, a provocative issue that, that demands exploration. Now, um, one of the things that I do, along with my colleagues in our rare disease patient group for pure event sequence uh, babies, is we interview leaders in this field. And it's a small world, you know, all of these rare diseases, you've got like, you've got these, this small group of clinicians that are really fascinated by that condition and develop deep expertise in that condition. And they generally know one another and they read one another's studies pre-publication and provide comments to one another. It's, it's typically this closely knit community, international, 
from all over the world, you know? And so um, I know a good number of those physicians in the, um, in the rare disease patient community for Robin Sequence. And we're interviewing a fantastic, brilliant physician, a clinician at Stanford. Her name is Dr. Heron Chu, and she is adopting that orthodontic approach to treating babies with pyruvate sequence. And we're doing a really wonderful interview with her. Um, we are going to publish within a week, and I would love to provide a link if possible. You could include it in your in your notes for the podcast because um, the treatment has now crossed the ocean and is now um, adopted by Stanford in America, and it's in the process of being adopted at Harvard by another fantastic peer event sequence expert named um, Corey Resnick. And on, on that subject of Corey Resnick, our, our organization did a wonderful interview with Corey Resnick um, last year on the prenatal diagnosis of peer event sequence, because Corey and his team have done really fascinating research on how to use not just MRI, uh, but also ultrasound to correctly identify um, with a very small margin of error pyruvate sequence during the prenatal period, which that prenatal diagnosis comes with many advantages as we were talking about before. I mean, a prenatal diagnosis allows us, the parents, to mentally prepare, emotionally prepare for the, the tough road ahead, but it also allows us to plan. Let's give birth in this hospital or in that hospital, definitely not at home. You know, it, it allows for actual planning. It allows you to begin thinking of the team that you would like to treat your child that has these special needs and so on. So anyway, that was another interview that we really enjoy doing on the prenatal diagnosis. But but this one that's coming up will specifically address the orthodontic non-surgical approach to treating these babies that are born with pyruvate sequence. Um, we're really looking forward to it. And we think it's a huge development. And we love when physicians push the envelope, when clinicians challenge uh, established thinking and say, why not? You know, why, why not try this? This looks promising. Let's pursue it. Let's do some studies. You know, let's really explore this because, well, I mean, there is an unfortunate lack of sufficient research in rare diseases across the board for many complicated reasons. Um, there are just so many thousands of rare diseases there are very, very complex things in situations like pure event sequence. There, there really is a lot of variation from patient to patient, and there are other challenges. I mean, it's tough for a pharma company to dedicate enormous investments into a treatment, which really, at the end of the day, may have quite a small market size. You know, you you can't argue with financial reality. It would be great if. Um, Public resources were devoted to research into rare diseases, but the fact is that we do face these sort of limitations that that result in the fact that the vast majority of rare diseases have no approved treatment or cure. That's one of the devastating realities that all of us rare disease patients and parents have to live with every day is that we're talking about 90, 95% of rare diseases have no effective treatment or cure. So we are living day to day, week to week, month to month in, in the hope that there might be some light at the end of a long tunnel. It's a tough situation to be in. It's really tough. Um, that's why it's it's so beautiful when we see support from the private sector, a beautiful gesture being the one 
that your CEO at Elsevier providing open access for our article because we think that the article that we wrote will help open minds of clinicians that are involved in peer event sequence, as well as students and clinicians that are still in a training period. We raise a lot of interesting questions. Please read the article because the article is not some emotional tearjerker. Here's what happened to us. Here's our painful patient journey. It's much more than that. We talk about the various treatments from the perspective of the patient. And that's important. That's important because you've got the data, but you also have people and you know both are are kind of key in the mix so please read the article whether or not you know much about peer event sequence because i think that it will help you to see things from a a kind of a, a slightly different angle and that's always helpful in life to see things from a slightly different angle absolutely and i'm glad you touched upon that i mean there's so many threads we can pull on based on what you were just saying but i you know i did read the article and one of the things i love about meeting people like you in the rare disease community in general is just how clearly passionate you are about it because it's your it's your daughter it's your family and this theme of like partnering with patients and clinicians and researchers all partnering uh i think if like the the more common diseases you know diabetes and hypertension if patients or family members took you know 0.01% of the uh motivation and passion that's evident in so many of the rare disease community groups um, we'd be able to prevent so much uh, suffering and, and, and needless suffering and pain and healthcare costs. Um, one thing I wanted to touch upon, though, and you made this clear in your talk, is you know because it's one in ten thousand, right, or one in a hundred thousand for some other rare disorders, that's distributed across the world in different languages. There isn't going to be a rare disease center of excellence for every rare disease in every country. You make this point in your article that it's important for, you know, governments and others to make it even more possible not to hinder, but to help rare disease patients to kind of get together and go to these centers of excellence for the best care. You know, can you talk a bit about some of the challenges you faced? You know, Lizanne was born in France, the, the treatments in Germany. I think your, your your legal background, you're involved in sort of how do you get EU nations to recognize that and pay for the healthcare costs that are significant? So I do have um, quite a bit of experience in the question of cross-border healthcare in Europe, which is a funny thing because I'm American. I'm really very American, but I learned a lot about cross-border care in Europe particularly in the context of rare disease patients because of the situation we had with our daughter, Louisiane. So they missed the prenatal diagnosis. So she was born in a center which was not a center of excellence for her rare disease. And she really needed to be in a center which was a center of expertise for her rare disease. I mean, she is a syndromic form of pyruvate sequence. She, she had and continues to have very serious problems she should have been permitted to transfer to a center of expertise. And we had correctly, independently identified the center of our choosing, which was in Tübingen, Germany. And you might think, well, you know, that's you're in France and, and now you're talking about going to Germany, but Germany is just across the border. It's, it's not even a very long drive. I mean, you know, in an ambulance, it's a transfer. And so we um, learned about the laws, and I, I am a lawyer, so I did the research, and the most important law in question here is it's called Regulation 883, and what Regulation 883 says is that a patient in the European Union who has a rare disease has the right to access a rare disease treatment in another European Union country if that treatment is not available where they live. 
And so we applied for authorization for our daughter to receive the Tübingen Palatal Plate treatment where it was available just across the border in Germany. We did an, a really beautiful application. I included literally six medical studies. We have a controlled study dating back to 2007 and a series of studies after that, which looked at this treatment from every angle and always evidence-based medicine, pre and post-intervention PSG, the polysomnography, and weight gain data. So this is not just a bunch of clinicians saying, we consider this that this treatment is effective. This is objective criteria. And it was really high quality studies put out by the, the Tumagen University uh, Hospital Center of Expertise. Well, the application was rejected. And so what we faced was an indefinite period in the ICU. Our daughter had already spent five full weeks in the ICU connected to a mechanical breathing machine and a feeding machine. And you have to remember anywhere in the world, five weeks in the ICU is going to cost a fortune. So we were actually asking the French administration, let us save you money. Let us get our daughter into a treatment which promises to liberate her from the breathing machine and get her out of the ICU in two to three weeks, full stop. That's it, you know? And they said no. So this wasn't a situation where the rejection was based on the exorbitant costs of some uh, gene therapy or the, the questionable efficacy or safety. It wasn't that at all. Let's just put it this way. The rejection was not based on medical reasons. So we were now um, looking at, we keep her in the ICU another five weeks, another 10 weeks. There was no scheduled date of release. The ICU had become our second home. You know, I, I mean, literally, you know, we would go there, put our stuff in the lockers, um, wash our hands and arms and wear the gowns and, you know, spend the whole day and evening. We would have to leave at night, go home again. You know, the cycle, it, it was devastating. It was very, very painful. We decided, hey, we're getting a bank loan. Okay, my father actually borrowed money against his home. He transferred the money to the German hospital and we transferred Lisiane to Germany. And we decided the top priority is getting her into the treatment because it's time sensitive. The earlier the treatment begins, the better and the, the more favorably the babies respond. We thought that the legal administrative dispute should be secondary in importance. Well, um, she got the treatment as promised. She was liberated from the breathing machine. Um, we were out of the hospital in, in uh, I think it was 19 days, and it changed our lives. Remember, she had never left the hospital. Five straight weeks in ICU with uh, no hope of getting out in another five weeks. We didn't have any idea. And so we were very pleased with the results. Um, and then we took up the administrative appeal. And that is a kind of incredible thing because it's continuing today, and this dates back to 2017, and we decided to sue France for violating EU law. We knew we had the right to access the treatment. The European Commission specifically looked into the case and decided that France was in violation. The suit was uh, registered on January 25th in 2019. We're in August 2022, so we have waited three years and six months, and we have not had a single case hearing. We haven't had a case hearing. And now what you're looking at is not just France 
having violated EU cross-border healthcare law, but now France is in clear violation of basic human rights because it is a basic human right that every person has the right to a, a fair trial within a reasonable time by an independent and impartial tribunal. In America, we think of this as due process. We're not going to give up. We're not going to give up. We don't care if we've got to fight for five years, 10 years, 15 years. We're going to get vindicated. Now, what this really all points to is that rare disease patients, when a rare disease treatment is available in the relatively unlikely scenario where there is a, a safe and effective rare disease treatment available, they should be facilitated in accessing that treatment. People, administrators, uh, healthcare systems should be bending over backwards to do whatever they can do to get that rare disease treatment uh, to the patient as quickly as reasonably possible. When a safe and effective rare disease treatment is available, please, for God's sake, help the patient get the treatment. Help the patient by all means. I mean, just it's just such common sense. It's just about basic human decency. Why put up obstacles? Why create difficult, uh, nightmarish situations like the ones that we're facing, my own family? But again, I don't want to try to evoke pity. We believe that the hardship that we're enduring it helps to shed light on a problem that many rare disease patients face, and that is access to care. We need access to be facilitated, not hindered. And I would like to make a request, a, a sincere and heartfelt request to the students and young clinicians that are listening to this podcast. If you face a rare disease patient with a complex rare disease, it is very likely that you are not the best qualified clinician to treat that particular patient. Your job is not to fake it till you make it. It's not to say, hey, I've got this. You know, put your confidence to the side and just accept the fact that there is probably a clinician somewhere out there that has spent years and years and years studying this particular rare disease who knows it better than anyone else or a small network of people like that clinician. Your job as a young clinician or student is to be a resource locator. You go and read the studies on that rare disease. Look at the names. Look at the authors whose names are popping up again and again in the literature. Reach out to those people. Reach out to them and say, look, you appear to be a real expert on this condition, and I'm dealing with a patient who we believe is suffering from this condition. We'd greatly appreciate your involvement, your ideas, your, your, your suggestions as to a care pathway. Um, what do you say? They'll write back to you because those clinicians have the passion for that rare disease and the patients affected by that rare disease. So please, young clinicians, find those experts that are out there, find them and make the connection and help to serve as the bridge between the rare disease patient that's in front of you and that expert that is an email away. They might be in a different state, 
They might even be in a different country, but it's very likely that based on their passion and their fascination with this rare disease, they will do more than you imagine to help you and to help your patients. Please think of that. I beg you to think of that. That's incredible advice. And, and uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, you connect me to Durhain at the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. And we had a chat yesterday. She'll be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. And she she mentioned similar things, which is, you know, what if we made a, a course that basically helped our audience and, you know, early stage healthcare professionals not only identify these rare disorders better, or at least know that there are 7,000 zebras out there so that they aren't, um, you know, fake it till you make it or overconfident about certain things. They're doing a double take on it. And hopefully with, you know, better AI, you know, reading of these ultrasounds and things like that, it won't be up to them to know every rare disorder. Um, but then being that bridge and that resource, which is not really taught, that's sort of, you know, there are rare disease communities that are lucky to have advocates like you who are extremely intelligent, extremely motivated. And anyone listening to this podcast, you know, if they didn't know, if they missed the intro about who you are and what your background is, at different points, they would think, oh, this is a physician based on how easily he talks about all these different conditions. This is a parent when you talk about your personal journey. This is a uh, lawyer. Obviously, you are a lawyer and, you know, talking about cross-border healthcare law. Um, this is an advocate, right? Uh, you know, somebody who actually goes and corrals people and, 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 and leads an organization doing rare disease work. And so the, that's an important point, too, is like you find the right combination of a highly motivated individual or group of individuals uh, and, you know, you build the care team together and then the people who are listening to this who are most likely never going to see certain conditions, like there will be conditions they can practice 40, 50 years, they may never see it. But the fact if they listen to this, if they watch an osmosis video on this topic and just somewhere in the back of their head, they know that there's some something they don't understand, that having that humility that they don't understand it, but then being that bridge and advocating for their patient uh, uh, or even, you know, having, if it's too busy for the physician, having the nurse team do it, having a care team, having a social worker get trained up on how to do this is, is really critical. I'm glad you mentioned that. So you already given a lot of advice to our audience, but zooming out, what other advice would you want anybody listening to this to know about advocating for helping their patients and family members, especially when it comes to rare disease? I would like to encourage um, listeners to seriously considering exploring a rare disease and diving in and immersing yourself into it because these are um, really complex conditions. And as students and young clinicians, you are all people with like, you know, way above average IQs. And it might be a really beautiful match because you're really smart, you're really ambitious, you've got this medical background, and here's this profound mystery of a rare disease. And you could be one of those global experts on that rare disease. And you might find that the deeper you go and the more you learn, the more you are loving this exploratory mission. Um, it can be really fascinating. It can be, it can be daunting. It can be discouraging because so many of these conditions don't yet have effective treatments and you will see patients come and unfortunately go. The mortality rate of these rare diseases is just unspeakably high and, and concentrated among very young patients. But that makes it more meaningful because this is where the battle is being fought. I mean, 
one of the most overlooked areas of healthcare is rare diseases. You've got thousands, like you have said, Shiv, there are thousands of rare diseases. Most of them have no effective treatment or cure. And with what we're learning about genetics, uh, things could be changing. We could be turning the corner now with, with gene therapy. And so you could be the one that makes a huge difference, not for the whole world, you know, uh, not like Jonas Salk, but but for a small population of patients that desperately need help and that would just be absolutely devoted for you, for your efforts, for the very fact that you're spending your time and your brain and your energy into trying to make a difference for them. Uh, you cannot underestimate, you cannot imagine the the real loyalty and devotion that we rare disease patients have for those hardcore clinicians that are at the conferences for our rare disease, that are publishing the papers about our rare disease. We, we look at them as the shining hope for the future of our children. And I would really encourage you to consider the rare disease space you know, really like looking at a condition and deciding if this pushes your buttons and why not? Why not dive into that and make a huge difference for the, the people that are suffering from that rare disease? It's just an idea. You know, the world is open for you. You can go in so many different directions, but think about this one, you know, think about the rare disease path. It's a worthy, worthy path. I think it's beautifully articulated and, and certainly, again, a story that keeps coming up and up, uh, whether it's the Chasing My Cure or John Crowley with Pompeii disease. You know, it's always one or more clinicians who dedicated their life, whether it's intellectually challenging, whether they have personal stories related to this condition, whether they want to throw the life raft out for this community that, that needs a lot of help. I will say, too, though, as far as the salt comparison, um, there are examples of rare diseases that when the clinicians or researchers spent the time uncovering why they happen, like familial hypercholesterolemia, that the research behind that rare condition led to the development of statins, which now over 200 million people take around the world. And so had tremendous benefits for heart health uh, around the world. So it's very possible that some of these very daunting and challenging conditions underneath all those layers uh, could have some foundational physiology or pathophysiology that could be used for many other conditions. So I would, I would make that clear to our audience and hopefully we get some of them motivated to, to pursue this path. Um, two other questions. How is Lizanne doing now? She's uh, is she five years old at this point. I think 2017 was when she was born. Yeah, she's five years old and um, she's a handicapped child. And yeah, that's, that's a strange thing. There's this overlap between the rare disease community and handicapped or people living in a situation of handicap, as they say in Europe, um, she's both. I mean, she's got a rare disease, one that's been diagnosed, one that they're still trying to diagnose, and she's handicapped. And it's quite challenging. It's it's very, very challenging. We do our best every day. Um, and we have found that you learn a whole lot about yourself as a person, as a parent. Um, you are pushed in ways where you're well, you're being forced beyond what you thought were your limits. And it doesn't really get easier, honestly. It doesn't really get easier. Things change, but it's a strange uh, odyssey being a rare disease parent for us, and I think for many rare disease parents, where it just sort of forces you to question everything. 
and ask big questions about life. You cannot keep asking why, why us? You have to kind of shift gears into what's next, you know, what what's the next step? You don't have that that luxury of indulging in, you know, self-pity. You've got to meet the challenges of each day when you're a rare disease parent and do everything you can for your child to the very best of your abilities. I mean, one of the things that we worry about and I know that a lot of people in our situation will understand exactly what I mean. You worry about what will happen when you're not around and how your child will be cared for and in what way when you're gone. And that's one of those sort of weird things that the typical parent doesn't really um, face that burden. You know, you're hoping your kid gets into an Ivy League college and gets the, the job that he or she wants, has a happy marriage. I mean, we're we actually worry, you know what's going to happen when we're dead. And and that seems really morbid, but that's kind of the intense gravity of the rare disease experience, particularly when the rare disease has a neurological component with uh, not just physical, but but intellectual handicap. I mean, it's tough. It's tough, but you you just have to keep going. You just have to keep going. And I think that from the hardship can potentially come very beautiful things. I mean, I really, I want to emphasize that that over there in America, I know that Nord, which has just been such a, an incredible game changer in, in the landscape for rare disease patients in America, it was started by a woman named Abby Myers, and she described herself, and this is a quote, she said that she's a simple housewife from Connecticut with children who have a rare genetic disorder. Well, that simple housewife created Nord, which is responsible for the passage of the Orphan Drug Act of 1983. And no policy in the world, not anywhere in America or Europe, comes close to the benefits that have been produced by the Orphan Drug Act of 1983. So the point is, is that parents without medical training who have skin in the game, children with a rare disease, or, or they themselves suffer from a rare disease, they can do good things. They can be meaningful parts of the movement. And so totally, it's it's really, it's about the clinicians, but those that are not clinicians can also contribute in a very meaningful way and, and open doors for the clinicians, help to get research funding for you and help to push through legislation that creates incentives for pharma to invest in R&D and so on. And it's like you said, you know, R&D in rare disease, orphan drug development, often has unintended beneficial effects for the general population. When you study extreme conditions, you often learn about more common conditions. So don't look at it as it's just charity for tiny uh, sub-patient groups. No, it's, it's science. And through this research, you can learn and you can make a difference for many, many, many people, not just those rare disease patients. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's such a beautifully stated uh, example of how, you know, I think there's this famous quote, don't doubt that um, a small group of highly motivated uh, people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that has. Margaret Mead, right? Margaret Mead, yeah, yeah I paraphrased yeah. it. I took a lot of liberties on that, but uh, yeah, it's one of these quotes that's very motivating. Um, and you know, whatever we can do to help raise awareness and education is something I know we're committed to at Osmosis and Elsevier. Um, my last question, Philippe, for you is: Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with today before we let you uh, let you go? I know it's evening in Europe right now. 
Yeah, I, I'd like to say that sometimes physicians can feel like they're on the hot seat. But I want to say as well that you clinicians have one of the toughest damn jobs out there. Okay, you the stakes could not be higher. And there is so much that we don't know. We know a lot but there's so much that we don't know. And so I want to thank you for doing one of the hardest damn jobs that anybody can do. And we appreciate you and we need you. So, you know, keep working and keep your faith and please accept my thanks and admiration for your hard studies and your hard work and the stress that you face every single day in, in your career as clinicians. Um, Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And my whole family appreciates it. We do need you and we thank you. Philippe, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your story and so many insights. It's going to be very hard for us to choose what the quote is that goes with this podcast. And I'll say that you know, we've done over 300 podcasts. I've probably done about 70% of them as the host. Um, this is definitely one of my favorite, if not top top favorite, uh, just because I hear the passion. It has a lot of great takeaways. And I really want all of our listeners to engage in the ways you said, uh, whether it's, again, just being that bridge when they see something they don't understand or going all the way and becoming a real advocate, a real leader, attending the symposia for a specific condition and maybe having an incredible impact from a policy perspective, a research perspective, a clinical perspective, whatever they can do. Uh, so truly, truly appreciate your time. And I'm so glad Kumsal connected us. Thank you, Shiv. Thank you, Osmosis and Elsevier. I really appreciate your, your taking an interest. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. Well, with that, uh, our listeners can expect multiple more episodes featuring rare diseases. It's a space we're very passionate about for the reasons we just spent the last hour discussing. And Philippe, thanks again. And remember to do your part to raise the line and flatten the curve. Thanks again. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.